Well, in case you have not noticed, I have been trying to take us through a sermon series that hits the core values that we will be considering next week in our business meeting. Those core values, the six core values that we defined as a church, are P-cubed core values. Prayer, community, unity, the Bible, evangelism, and discipleship. But I have to make a confession this morning. As I was preparing for this week's sermon, I really had to admit to myself that I hate to study the Bible this way. To start with an idea, to go to the Bible and try to figure something out. There's nothing wrong with using the Bible to discover insights and to expound on ideas and concepts and and, and these bigger things, but I have to confess I really do not like to study the Bible this way, and here's why. Here's what really convicted me this week as I prepared for this morning's sermon. When we do that, we miss out on some of the greatest nuance and the greatest pictures that are available to us in the Bible. Because rather than allowing it to speak for itself, we're trying to understand something from it. It's two ways to approach it, and I'll say... I do feel like I've done my very hardest to to stay true to the text that we've looked at each week in Colossians, but this week I'm just not happy with doing that. And so I wanted to preface this message by saying we will be talking about community. So far we've talked about prayer, we've talked about evangelism, and this week we'll be talking about another core value, community. But my priority this morning is not to talk about that core value. It's to unwrap and unpack what the Bible has to say. And and I think that's a good enough introduction to say, let's turn to the Bible this morning. Picking up where we left off last week, we're in Colossians chapter 2, looking at the first seven verses in this chapter. So I'd ask you to open... There with me, read along with me as I read what the Bible says. The Bible says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I said I want to talk about one of our core values this morning. Namely, I want to talk about what it means to value community. And uh, just like last week, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. We've said this is a core value for our church. Now let's ask, is this an aspirational value or is it an actual value? It's one thing to say something, it's another thing to do it. 
And, and so what we have to ask, is this aspirational or is this actual, is really the question, is this something we're already doing or is this something that we aspire to be doing in community? One of the things that we can pick up on from the text this morning is the prudence of counsel. That's my first point. The prudence of counsel in community. We see that mainly in the context of this passage. You see, last week I talked quite a bit about how Paul was, why Paul was writing to this group of strangers in the church of Colossae. That he was writing to them about his suffering because he was appealing to them. Here's what he was doing. Because there was an issue in the church in Colossae. They were being um, infiltrated by false teachers. People who were adding to the gospel more than what needed to be there. And their concept and their idea and their understanding of what the gospel was was being muddled because of it. I think Christians today deal with the same issue. Pinterest and Twitter and Facebook haven't helped because now there's even more false teachers that we're exposed to. We have to be even more careful around that, especially within the church. But I'm getting sidetracked. Let's talk about why Paul is writing this letter. Last week I said that he was making a point to talk about his suffering because most likely these false teachers were using Paul's current situation, that he was in prison as a way to undermine Paul's authority as an apostle. They were saying, why do you need to listen to him? Who is he anyway? He's not even here with you. Paul was saying, you're right, I'm not here with you. I'm in prison instead because I've been advocating for people like you. That's why you should listen to me. Also made clear the fact that Paul, uh, in rejoicing in his suffering, had a different kind of perspective than we might have from an earthly viewpoint. He had an eternal perspective for these people. That was last week. This week, I want us to understand why Paul's bothering to write this letter at all. Why is Paul bothering to write this letter at all? Now, I said that the book of Colossians is written to a group of strangers, and we've talked some in studying this book about how this church in Colossae managed to be formed in the first place. Paul did not found this church. He didn't organize it. In fact, the way this church came to be was during Paul's missionary journeys that we read about in Acts, he actually spent quite a bit of time in a completely different city called Ephesus. He founded a church in Ephesus. Out of that church came somebody who's mentioned in chapter 1, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras left the church in Ephesus, planted the church most likely in Colossae, and also the church in Laodicea, mentioned in our text this morning at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul does not know these people. He did not find this church. Why is he writing this letter? False teachers came up. 
started infiltrating the church, started infiltrating the thoughts of genuine believers and confusing them with things that are more complicated than they need to be. Epaphras then goes to Rome where Paul is in prison, sitting under house arrest, to ask for his advice in dealing with this situation. Paul writes to them what I want to look at, his purpose in writing this letter at all, to encourage them, to provide endearment to them, and to enrich them with the truth of the gospel, the simple truth. To encourage them, to provide endearment to them, and to enrich them. And by the way, if you're looking for where community ties into this, This is our same imperative response to community. Why we need it. Why it's important and why it should be a value for our church at all. So that we can encourage one another, endear one another, and so that we can enrich one another. It's the same application for us today in Paul's purpose for writing this letter at all. So let's look at these points. Let's understand first... These false teachers, what were they teaching that was so corruptible or so wrong? I want to give you a word. I don't know who it is in our congregation, but there's always somebody who appreciates the words. And and so, you know, I use them and some people roll their eyes. Here's the word. Gnosticism. Gnosticism. I don't know who you are that appreciates that, but I appreciate you for appreciating it. Gnosticism. You probably are familiar with the word agnostic, which just means somebody, I'm agnostic, I don't know. That prefix A means don't know. So gnostic means I'm in the know. And here's what these heretics are claiming. They're saying to the church that there's some special kind of knowledge that they have, some special kind of spiritual knowledge that they have that is allowing them to to be better Christians. They're spiritually in the know. And they're overcomplicating a simple gospel. Gnostics. Emphasizing their personal spiritual knowledge instead of the orthodox teachings of the church. In fact, even somewhat undermining the authority of the church in Christians' lives. Let's talk about how Paul is writing this. First, I said that he was writing to encourage the church in Colossae, this group of strangers. He's writing to encourage them. We see that in the text. He says it plain as day. I'm writing to you that the people in the church in Laodicea also like you. All those people who have not seen me face to face, verse 2 says, that their hearts may be encouraged. What's it mean to encourage somebody? What's Paul actually saying here? This English word encouraged means to do something with heart. Think about the issue that the church in Colossae is facing. Their thoughts have been corrupted with an overcomplicated Gnostic way of thinking. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them out of this writing to a group of strangers to help them through this. 
to encourage somebody means to speak to them with heart. <coughs> this isn't an empty kind of shallow compassion that he's sharing with them. This is something that comes from his heart. To encourage someone means to care for them with heart. Not just out of obligation or necessity, but with heart. Secondly, we said that Paul was writing to them to provide endearment. I think it's interesting that... I think... I have to confess, if I heard about a church that was formed kind of in circum, uh, um, um, similar circumstances, it would be so easy to dismiss them upon hearing news that they had allowed heresy to infiltrate their church. This is a serious crime that they're levying, right? It would be so easy to dismiss an entire congregation after hearing something like this. But Paul writes to them with endearment. Keep reading where I left off in verse 2. The Bible says, being knit together in love. He's writing to them that their hearts may be knit together in love. Not just his partnership with them, but also them. And so here's what we're looking at. He's writing to them so that there is endearment because he genuinely cares about them. This is a sign of mature faith, of a maturing faith. It's rather immature of me to say that I think it would be easy to dismiss a group of people because I find something out that they shouldn't be doing. That's immature. Where is the Christian spirit of reconciliation, of repair, and of restoral? completely missing, isn't it? Paul writes to them, people that he doesn't even know, with heart, with zeal and passion and purpose, because he wants to restore them. He wants to provide for them a path that they might be able to be restored back to a simple gospel truth that Christ is enough. That you don't need silly philosophy. That you don't need overly complicated concepts and ideas. You just need Jesus. That's all you need. He writes to them that they may be knit together in love. Thirdly, I said that he is writing to enrich their lives. Keep reading. Actually, let's just read verse 2 again. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the full riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Plain as day, Paul is writing to them not just to restore them, but to provide for them a means that they might return to a simple truth. This great mystery that everyone's trying to uncover is not so complicated. God's mystery is Christ. That's it. Church, I don't know why we overcomplicate this so much, but we're not that much different than the church in Colossae. 
We grapple with this idea that Christ gave his life so that he could forgive us, that he could restore the relationship that he designed for us with him. And it's not two weeks later, Christians are getting wrapped up in things that are just, why? Philosophies that are trying to explain, and eventually, here's where it leads, how can I earn salvation? Because the more you think about what Christ did for you, the more you realize there's nothing that you did to deserve it. And when you really meditate on that idea, here's where you find yourself saying, God, how, why would you do that? Because we can't understand it. This great mystery is simple. It is Christ. Christ is not only sufficient, but He is superior. He is providing for us a means to this great mystery. And Paul is writing to these believers, these strangers in the church of Colossae, for this reason. That they might be restored and renewed and able to experience this enrichment. It's that simple. It's the same reason why we say that we value community. Because just like the church in Colossae, we have a tendency to get distracted we have a tendency to become overwhelmed and we need each other to help us to mature in our faith. That's why I call this first point the prudence of counsel. It's a cautionary measure that protects us as individuals because the reason for community isn't for the group. It's for the individual. The reason we value community is so that the individual in us who is a sinner, who is fickle, who is susceptible to fleeting thoughts, might be protected. That we might be watched after. That we would have somebody beside us encouraging us. That we would have two people beside us endearing with us, that we would have a group of believers that we are together working to become enriched in the mystery of God's grace. That's why we value community. Because we need it. We need it. I mentioned the Gnostics and the reason for providing some sort of explanation about what the Gnostic movement was presenting was because I wanted to point out how crafty Paul was in writing this letter. In making this point, he's trying to draw these people out of a false way of thinking. Look what he says. He says, I want you to have the full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Understanding, in this sense, is the ability to piece together information. That we can piece together information, because the Gnostics are saying that they've elevated themselves spiritually with some sort of special knowledge that's come from somewhere other than the church. By the way, if anyone says that, they're full of it. 
here's God's inspired word. All the knowledge we need is in here. Anything outside of that wasn't necessary for God to include in his inspired word. And how we draw conclusions from that, I'll leave that up to you. Paul's trying to draw these people out of this way of thinking, and he uses the word knowledge, the ability to piece together these things, because while it is simple, the mystery of God's grace is Christ. There are parts of it we do have to push onward to spiritual maturity. It's not good enough to repent. Oh, wait, I'm saying that wrong, and I'm going to watch this video later, and I'm going to shoot myself for saying that. It is good enough for salvation that we repent and that we believe in Christ. But repentance means that we push onward to maturity, that there's a change that happens. We have to push onward to spiritual maturity, gaining understanding, the ability to piece together these parts of God's mystery. Our knowledge, just the ability to understand and grasp truth is not necessarily enough. We need understanding. We need to be able to pull these things together. Now, I said Paul was crafty in using these words because these are the same words that the Gnostics are using to appeal to the church in Colossae in the first place. Paul's not redefining them, but he's clarifying where they actually belong in our faith. Not in overcomplicating things, not in worldly philosophy, but in piecing together God's mystery, which is simple, that he loves us. That he, that's why he made it possible for us to be saved in the first place. That he can restore a relationship with us that he wanted from the very beginning. It's simple. There is... It is so important that we not only acknowledge the purpose for progress in our spiritual lives, but that we resolve ourselves to become spiritually mature. I don't know how to emphasize it, and I don't know how to to draw out how important it is that Christians quit sitting idly by, that they stir one another up, and that they become serious and passionate about growing in their spiritual lives. That they set aside the garbage that comes from the world and they focus on God's Word to the point that they are truly built up. If you would, look at verse 4 with me. All of these things that Paul has said, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I mentioned the issue that social media has presented in in the last couple of decades. And I love social media. I posted last night three times. I never do that. Three times in one day. I was laughing at myself. I must have really not wanted to um, do sermon preparation. Anyways, three times I posted. I like social media. But Christians have to be cautious whenever they turn to places where the world can influence them. 
when false ideas similar to Gnosticism present themselves. I'll tell you an issue that's more prevalent on social media today than probably any other one, this idea of universalism that always point to heaven. As long as you're a good person, you're going to wind up there. I've met Christians, or at least people that say that they're Christians, who agree with this. And it's garbage. Because the mystery of God's gospel is simple. It's Christ. There is no other way. There's one way. And the way, by the way, it's narrow. You don't get to choose your own. This isn't a buffet line. We're not making a a meal where you choose your protein and choose your seasoning. There's one way. It's Christ. I don't want you to be deluded. I don't want you to be deceived by people who speak more eloquently than I could ever speak. By people that provoke thoughts more poignantly than I could ever attempt to achieve. I don't want you to be deluded. There's nothing that I can teach that will protect you from that. The only thing that will protect the church from being deluded with plausible arguments is this encouragement, this endearment, and this enrichment that Christ that, I'm sorry, that Paul and Timothy are providing in this letter. That Paul and Timothy are writing in this letter. I can't emphasize that enough. There is a purpose for our spiritual progress. It's for our own protection. But even so, Paul says in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. That you might be protected even when somebody who is called to watch after you is not here. Because you have discernment that can protect yourself. Because you've made it a priority in your life to grow spiritually that isn't dependent on somebody else. That is our purpose for progress. The reality is, in the Christian life, we are either growing or we are reclining. We're either growing in our faith or it's becoming more susceptible to plausible arguments of this world. We're either maturing or we are decaying. Pushing onward to maturity, as Hebrews 6.1 tells us, to go on to maturity is to protect ourselves from false teachers. And not just that, but it's how we can protect each other from false teachers. This is our purpose for progress. I've talked now this morning about the prudence of counsel and I've talked about the purpose of our individual progress. This brings me to my last point. 
We're wrapping up quickly this morning. Maybe. My last point. As Paul writes, therefore, in all of these things, as he, as he wraps up this thought, introducing chapter 2 of this letter, he gives us a picture of what pushing onward for progress looks like. And this might be the most important part of the sermon this morning. Not just that we understand the purpose for community and Paul's purpose in writing, but this might be even more important that we actually take something from it because there's direct application that we can put ourselves here and we can say, am I growing? Do I look like this or don't I? The pieces of progress in Paul's encouragement begins in verse 5. Because Paul's providing this because he wants to look at the church in Colossae Look at the church in Laodicea. Look at all those people who he's not had the opportunity to see face to face. Even though he's not with them presently, he's with them in spirit, rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith. Keep reading. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's, there's really three pictures that I want to look at because Paul's using a lot of imagery here that I want to make sure that we see. In verse 5, he says, I want to see your good order and I want to see the firmness of your faith. These two words are creating the picture of an army. They're creating the picture of a community. But not just a community, a well-organized community. I want to see your order. This is a military term. I want to see your order among each other. I want to see your order. That not only are you growing as individuals, but as a community of believers, you are working together. There's order among you. Secondly, he says, I want to see the firmness of your faith. That's the English standard version. I think the, the King James there says, I want to see the steadfastness of your faith. I want to see the firmness that you are not wavering and that you are not moving, that because you are well ordered, you have a firmness in the simple, simple truth of the gospel that God loves you and, and that's enough. That God loves you and that that's enough. We are not alone, but we are united together in community and in Christ. The second picture I want to look at is this picture of a pilgrim. Verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is actually a common picture in the Bible. That our Christian faith or our spiritual maturity is a journey. It's a progress that we move upon as we walk towards maturity. That we push onward towards maturity. But notice how Paul says we are to walk. 
He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. This is not just an instruction that we should be progressing onward and pushing onward in our faith, but this is also an instruction manual for how we're supposed to do it. How did you receive Christ in the first place? But through faith. Faith. How are you supposed to walk and mature in the Christian faith? Is it with complicated ideas? Is it with philosophers? Is it with false teachers? Is it with nonsense that we can find on social media? Or is it through faith that we're supposed to traverse onward to spiritual maturity like a pilgrim growing in our faith? Faith was sufficient to save us It is sufficient to grow us. Pushing onward. Third picture that I want to look at. Just as you were, I'm sorry, verse 7 says that progressing onward, growing in our faith, we are rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, rooted and built up. This third picture is that of a tree. Remember Paul's writing, he tells us why in verse 4, that these people might not be deluded by plausible arguments that come from false teachers. That they might be rooted like a tree. Christians are not supposed to be tumbleweeds. We're not supposed to be blown around by every plausible argument that comes our way. We're supposed to be growing spiritually with deeper understanding, piecing all of the components of God's grace together. Not in nonsense, but in faith realizing that there are some things that our finite brains cannot comprehend because they are infinite. Literally outside of our finite brain's ability. We're supposed to be rooted. Not blowing around, not becoming distracted, but with roots. By the way, it's not a bush that I'm talking about. This isn't a plant that you can easily transplant from one place to the other. This is root systems that have reached deep, that are growing into the the depths of God's Word. Growing deeper. Encouraging each other to grow deeper. All of these pictures describe what it means to grow as a Christian. That we would be like an army, well-ordered, well-organized, and with a purpose. Standing steadfast against false doctrines, false teachings, and distractions that put our minds off of the mission that we were given. 
that we would be like a pilgrim walking in the same way that we received faith with faith as we progress towards maturity and that we would be like a tree rooted in the simple truth that the gospel affords us. All of these things describe what it means to grow in the spiritual life. If you're taking notes this morning, the three points of my sermon where there is prudence and counsel, there's a purpose for progress, and that there are these pieces of progress that we have to look forward to. I think it's important that we not just think about these pieces of progress simply as ideas or concepts or or pictures that Paul would want for these believers in an ideal world, but that we would evaluate ourselves against these. It isn't just enough to know what Paul's trying to say in this text. If we are to be rooted, if we are to be pilgrims, we have to picture ourselves against these and ask, am I on my spiritual pilgrimage? Am I growing and maturing in my faith or am I allowing myself to decay? If the latter is where we find ourselves There is a simple solution. At the end of verse 7, Paul says, just as you were taught, just as you were taught, return to the simple message of salvation and allow ourselves to grow in that. Set aside distractions, set aside obstacles, and allow ourselves to grow, that we can grow together with thanksgiving. It really is that simple, and it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. As a church, we're called here as a local assembly of believers, that, that, that we might represent these, the same purpose that Paul had in writing to a group of believers that he didn't know as a church today, we should be reflecting that in the lives of other people. As Christians, we are called to be a part of community, to be a part of of something bigger than ourselves. Because as individuals, we are fickle. We are fleeting. And really, I think the Bible's clear. And I didn't talk about this this morning, but we could talk about it afterwards if you wanted. I think the Bible's pretty clear that we cannot push onward to spiritual maturity by ourselves. It's just not possible. We need community. That's why God gave us the church. The Gnostics essentially were undermining the authority of the church in saying that they had some special sort of idea or concept. Paul's refuting that by saying that there is a simple means of God's grace. It is Christ. Christ is sufficient, but he calls us to be a part of a church, to be rooted 
in our faith, committed to another body of believers that we can encourage them, enjoy endearment with them, knitted together in love, our hearts share for one another so that we can encourage people and so that we can enjoy the enrichment of the gospel, the fullness of the assurance of faith. It really is a simple message. But it takes a community to achieve the mission that we have because of it. We're going to have a song of invitation. I've asked you to reflect and evaluate yourself on the pictures of the pieces of progress. The army. The army the pilgrim, and the tree. To see if we see ourselves in those pictures. If you don't, returning to those pictures is just as simple as returning to the simple faith that saved you. But maybe there's a chance that you don't know this faith. That you've never seen it. I'd ask you, To consider this knowledge. That Christ's death on a cross is not some complicated idea, but that it was done so that He could become the propitiation of our sins. So that He could become the replacement of what we deserve in taking on God's wrath. He provided a way for us to experience a relationship with a God who loves us. Who created us with the end in mind that He might restore a relationship with us.